Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. Today, we'll hear about art for, by, and of the people. After World War I, some major museums began showing works by artists without academic training, crashing the gates of the elite art world. Their gate-crashing cleared the way for the important role of self-taught artists to this day, diversifying creative work across race, gender, class, ability, and other identities. Gate-crashers is the new exhibition at the High Museum of Art. The show takes its name from a book by Catherine Gentleson, the High Museum's curator of folk and self-taught art. She joins us now via Zoom. Katie, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I'm always so happy to be in conversation with you. Please tell us about the relationship between this show and your book, Gatecrashers. My book, Gatecrashers, came out of the research that I did for my doctoral degree at Duke University. So for that publication, I was really focusing on the three most celebrated self-taught artists to emerge in the post-World War I period. And those artists were John Kane, Horace Pippin, and Anna Mary Robertson, Grandma Moses. And so the book is really very focused on each of them uh, as a kind of case study and window into why self-taught artists became so popular in this period. But the exhibition takes a much broader view, and it certainly um, includes many wonderful works by Kane and Pippin and Moses, but it looks at a lot of their kind of, you know, contemporaries, other artists who never went to art school, never had academic, you know, schooling in in art making, and yet uh, became very, very popular, especially in the 1930s. So it's, they're very similar, the book and the exhibition, But um, the exhibition kind of brings alive this moment through the stories of many different artists, not just John Kane, Horace Pippin, and Grandma Moses. Both the work and life of Horace Pippin are fascinating. What can you tell us about him? Horace Pippin is such an important American artist who, like many self-taught artists, was somebody who knew he had a passion for art making as a child had a kind of a bit of success as a child being recognized for his artistic skill. He won a competition that allowed him with his, some of his drawings that allowed him to kind of get some free art supplies at one point. But like many self-taught artists, he came from a background, both in terms of his class and his race, he was African-American, that meant that he had very diminished opportunities for pursuing art as an actual career during his lifetime. And so he ended up um, working all kinds of different jobs. He was a a hotel porter, he was a mover, and ultimately he enlisted in the army during World War I. And he was part of this incredibly important generation of African-American people who fought in segregated forces during World War I. Uh, He was part of the 369th Regiment of the army that joined with French forces to fight this kind of brutal and prolonged 
defense of the Allied, you know, border essentially during during World War One. And these were frontline soldiers who spent hundreds of days in trenches, so many of them perishing in, you know, this kind of mortal danger of these frontline kind of skirmishes and battles. And Horace Pippen himself, ultimately in 1918, was shot by a sniper, by a German sniper. And he was honorably discharged. He was, uh, with other soldiers, recognized for his valor fighting in the war, received a croix de guerre from the French government. And when he came back to the United States, he actually wound up rehabbing his arm, this injury that he had um, incurred during his, his fight, through art making. So he started initially burning wooden panels. He would hold a kind of red hot poker in the arm that was injured and use his able arm to guide it, to burn designs into small wooden panels. And then he eventually started, you know, painting those panels as well. As he gained more strength in his arm, he was able to hold a brush and kind of developed dexterity with a paintbrush. And by 1930, he was often combining those two methods of painting and burning. And he began making these just, you know, incredible depictions, both of his memories of war and of uh, imagined scenes of especially Southern life, of, of the kind of era of cotton production. This is something that we see in the exhibition, but all kinds of paintings, still life, portraits, basically everything you can think of that an artist would paint, Horace Pippen did paint. And he started receiving recognition for his work in the late 1930s and really became one of the most celebrated African-American artists of his moment. And what I try to really talk about in the book and the show is that he was embraced by both, um, we well, have to understand that the art world was very segregated in this era still, and it was very rare for African-American artists to be shown in mainstream art institutions like the Museum of Modern Art. But Horace Pippen was somebody who transcended the kind of white art world, as well as this emergent, incredibly active African-American art world that was kind of taking hold thanks to the activities, especially of professors at historically Black colleges and universities like Hale Woodruff here in Atlanta and Elaine Locke and James Porter at Howard University in DC. And so Horace Pippen was somebody who, again, really kind of transcended and broke through race barriers that existed in the art world at that time and was able to be recognized for his talent um, by people from all different kinds of backgrounds. Oh, his work is stunning. This show demonstrates the power of the curator's role, especially in its historic context. You mentioned the 1930s. How did the work of the art historian Albert Barr in part lead to what we see on the walls in Gatecrashers at the High? So Albert Barr Jr. was the founding director of the Museum of Modern Art, and he was very much a scholar, very much an art historian. And he had just such an important role of shaping that museum's program of modernism, especially in, in the first decade of its existence. So it was founded in 1929, and he remained the director until 1943. And he was somebody who felt strongly that self-taught artists were a part of modernism. He didn't see them as existing outside of modernism. He saw them as being practitioners of the same kinds of formal innovations, whether we're talking about expressive color or you know, reducing realistic form into more abstract shapes. These were things that he recognized self-taught artists as being able to achieve despite their lack of grounding in art historical traditions. And so he presented them alongside trained modernists. He saw their connection to people like Pablo Picasso, who's on view at the high right now. He saw their connection to so many different contemporary artists working at that time. And he not only um, encouraged exhibitions of their work at the Museum of Modern Art, even though he didn't actually curate them himself. The real curators behind that work, people like Dorothy Miller and Holger Cahill. Um, and Sidney Janis, who are all kind of mentioned throughout Gatecrashers. But he, he created a space at MoMA that was inclusive of these artists. And he didn't just do exhibitions of their work, he actually acquired their work for the collection. And in fact, a lot of the works that are on view in Gatecrashers, or not a lot of them, but a, a, good, a good group of them, are from the Museum of Modern Art's permanent collection. And we're so grateful that they've been able to extend these loans to us. But they were works that were acquired under Alfred Barr because of how how firmly he believed that these artists were, like I keep saying, really a part of modernism, not artists who were separated and operating outside of it. 
one art critic reviewing the show talked about the marvel of these works as the people's art. Yes, the the notion that this was a people's art um, was so important to the reception of self-taught artists in this era because especially in the 1930s, there was a real paradigm shift in the American art world around the idea that artists were workers, right? Uh, This is the Great Depression. This was an era when the federal government was putting a lot of money behind putting people back to work in various ways. And this included putting artists back to work. And the federal government was, you know, paying artists not only to make the things that we kind of remember most clearly, like the big murals at post offices or public monuments, but even just to make easel painting or smaller sculpture that would then be housed um, in government buildings, much of which is now a part of the Smithsonian American Art Museum's collection. So this idea that, you know, artists were people, artists were workers, they weren't always being kind of put on this pedestal, you know, as these kind of supernatural beings, but um, really everyday people who, who needed work, who needed recognition um, and support was, was so widespread during the Depression. And it really, really helped facilitate this interest in self-taught artists who were seen as being especially close to this idea about artists as, you know, everyday people because they came from often very humble backgrounds. They were often working class and uh, people who you know, held many different kinds of jobs during their lifetime and made art on the side and often not until you know, late in their lives. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights is speaking with Katie Gentleson, the High Museum Curator of Folk and self-taught art. Katie, you are so passionate about this art, and Gatecrashers, the book, essentially is your dissertation, isn't it? Gatecrashers is based on my dissertation research, and funnily enough, I went to grad school determined to write this dissertation. (laughs) Um, I, I, I went in knowing that I wanted to write about this origin story, this moment when self-taught artists first received recognition from the mainstream art world. And I knew this because I'd been working after my undergraduate degree. I was working in publishing in New York, and I was encountering, just by chance, all of these incredible breadcrumbs, essentially, about self-taught artists at exhibitions and art fairs that I was going to. I was learning about people like Horace Pippin or William Edmondson, you know, these path-breaking African-American artists who, uh, again, broke all these barriers within within the art world of their day, or, or Grandma Moses, you know, who's really kind of arguably the most famous American artist of all time, and the kind of scope of her achievements in her lifetime are, is just truly unbelievable, especially when you consider that she didn't start painting until she was in her 70s. So, uh, you know, these stories, these incredible American stories that I had not learned about in my traditional, you know, background of learning about, you know, art from a, an academic setting. I did not know these stories. These stories were not told in, you know, classes on American art. And I, uh, I felt very driven and committed to um, learning more myself and to trying to use my dissertation to tell the story of these of these artists who were the original gate crashers. Would you talk a bit more about Grandma Moses? Sure. So Grandma Moses is somebody who, you know, despite, again, being arguably the most famous American artist of all time, somebody whose name recognition continues today. What I'm so interested in about her is not only her personal story. So, of course, she has this incredible kind of trajectory, as so many self-taught artists do, where she was, you know, born on a farm in Eagle Bridge, New York, winds up moving to Virginia, actually, which most people don't know, and spending several decades there raising her family and running dairy farms, um, ultimately coming back to Eagle Bridge, New York, which is this very scenic river valley on the border with Vermont and New York. And so it's, it's, it's just an extraordinarily beautiful place. And she was so busy raising a family with farm work that she didn't have time to pursue this Um, interest in art she held as a child and her father was actually um, a self-taught artist as well and so he encouraged her as as he could but 
she was also the eldest of all her siblings. So she really had to care for all of her brothers and sisters. Anyhow, she finally later in life when her when her husband is, has passed away and she's living with some of her children and no longer able to do the kind of hard labor of farm work, she starts dedicating more time to first doing uh, embroidered pictures. And then because she gets really frustrated that moths are eating them, she turns to painting. And it also, she has arthritis and her, because by now she's in her seventies, you know, she wants a medium that isn't so hard on her physically and that will last. And so she makes this choice. She starts creating paintings and she exhibits them in a fair in the Cambridge Valley Fair in 1937. And in 1938, a lot of her paintings are hanging in a, a drugstore in upstate New York in Hoosick Falls. And a collector who lives in New York passes through, treats, needs to treat a stomachache and so stops at this drugstore and falls in love with her work and brings it back to New York, finds a dealer who has a, an incredible story all his own, a dealer named Otto Collier who immigrated to the United States during um, World War II, fled Austria. And uh, he founded a, a gallery in New York dedicated to um, mostly kind of Austrian and German expressionists um, and really introduced American audiences to people like Oskar Kokoschka and Egon Schiele. But he loves American folk art and he starts representing Grandma Moses. And then her fame kind of skyrockets in the 1940s and she just becomes this pop culture phenomenon. She's so much more than just a fine artist. She becomes literally America's grandmother. That's what the governor of, of Vermont ultimately dubs her. Um, she develops friendships with U.S. presidents, starting with uh, Harry Truman um, and going through John F. Kennedy. And she just becomes this national icon. And what I'm what I'm really interested in is this is a story that people maybe are more or less familiar with. But part of the story that Gatecrashers tries to tell for her is how she really challenged the American art world <laughs> around 1950. A, a lot of curators and critics were really angry that Grandma Moses was getting still so much visibility in exhibitions um, at home and especially abroad. They really wanted people like Jackson Pollock to be embraced as, uh, you know, the, the great American artist. Because Jackson Pollock and his abstract expressionist paintings with the drippy, enormous canvases were what was considered moving art forward at that time. Exactly. And part of what Gatecrashers brings forward and what you really have to understand about, about American art in the 20th century is that there's so much anxiety about whether America really has or has ever produced artists who are truly American, who really represent American innovation, or whether, you know, we've suffered and failed for decades, for even, you know, over a century to produce something that's truly original. And, you know, we know that there are so many extraordinary American artists who, who lived um, and produced work from really the 18th century onward, but they were always battling against this idea that what they were doing was too derivative of what their European peers were doing. And so when Jackson Pollock came along, you know, and a lot of the other artists associated with the New York school, this was a triumphal moment in the American art world where victory was kind of finally declared that there was this new movement in art that was conceived in the United States and that represented um, so many ideas about American innovation and individuality. And so this became a kind of a narrative that so many art historians, curators invented in this moment and have kind of clung to since. But really, you know, the reality of 1950 is that Grandma Moses was still wildly popular, arguably much more popular than Jackson Pollock was at that time. And this was very frustrating for these critics who really wanted to see a different story of American art being told. And similarly, confounding, I mean, why couldn't both styles or all styles coexist? Absolutely. And that's kind of the era that we live in now. We realize that so many different artists and artistic styles and movements actually coexist at any given moment. And we're kind of living in a moment of embracing that and celebrating the kind of diversity of any, you know, kind of historical moment in art history. The fact that there actually are so many 
wonderful artists, artists who aren't white and male, um, who were who were operating in really interesting ways at, at a given moment in time. And so that's part of what I hope the contribution of Gatecrashers is, is to remind and kind of really reveal that these self-taught artists were doing something really important alongside other kinds of movements and trends in American modernism. Katie Gentleson, the High Museum's curator of folk and self-taught art. We've been discussing the new exhibition, Gatecrashers, The Rise of the Self-Taught Artist in America. The show opens at the High on August 20th. We'll return to more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you've just tuned in, I've been speaking with the High Museum Curator of Folk and Self-Taught Art, Katie Gentleson. Katie, there's a parallel in music in the 20th century. Not exact, because we're not talking about self-taught musicians. Many of them were conservatory trained and had the finest music tradition in their training. But the idea that anything that was tonal, anything that sounded melodic, consonant, or pleasing was unfashionable. And Rachmaninoff was trashed by many in his day. But when we think about the musicians and the music of many composers who not only were active early to mid-20th century, but whose music was loved, we see that there is room for all of it. But they, too, couldn't, you know, it Gershwin... Eric Korngold and many of the film composers who came out of these pristine Central and Eastern European conservatories, their works couldn't be heard in the concert hall. And again, it speaks to your point about how fortunate we are that there's broader thinking now. No, it it is fascinating, but there is, you know, there are a lot of corollaries to what you're talking about. I mean, an interesting factoid is that, you know, Grandma Moses was the first artist featured on Edward R. Murrow's program, very popular, you know, I think it was on CBS television program, See It Now. And the episode that she was a part of was about American arts and culture, and it featured her and Louis Armstrong. <laughs> and it wasn't just their, you know, art that was being embraced in, in the episode. It was their kind of, their stories, the stories of their very different lives and how, you know, they each came from these backgrounds that didn't lead to a conservatory initially or to to a painting school, but nonetheless, they became these kind of dominant forces in American culture at mid-century. So I, I absolutely see the relationship. On the walls of the high, which paintings by Grandma Moses should we especially be on the lookout for? The first work that you'll encounter by Grandma Moses in the exhibition is is you encounter immediately upon walking into the show. And it's a wonderful scene of Hoosick Valley, of the Hoosick Falls area of New York. Again, this is kind of the neighboring town to where she lived in Eagle Bridge. 
And, you know, it's just a painting that immediately transports you to this snowy river valley with people and buildings in miniature and so, so much natural beauty kind of surrounding this, this small American town. And it's, it's really a painting that embodies what she offered so many audiences at mid-century, which was this kind of, this escape, this soothing kind of fantasy about American life that um, was so needed coming out of, you know, a second world war and going into the Cold War era. And it's something that I think still is very effective, especially given like just the broader moment that we're living in now amidst still this, you know, surging pandemic. Her paintings just provide, I think, a huge amount of comfort and kind of emotional tourism. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really, really wonderful work. And it's and it's historically important because it was collected by Duncan Phillips and it's being loaned to us by the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., it really embodies just how much the major collectors of American modernism in this era were interested in self-taught artists and were including them in their collections. And then the only other work I would love to mention quickly is, I think I said earlier that she spent, Grandma Moses did, uh, about 20 years living in Virginia. She's somebody who's so associated with New England, but she actually you know, raised her family in Virginia. Um, near kind of Staunton, Virginia, in the Shenandoah River Valley. And there's a painting in the show. It's actually two paintings, but well, the story goes that in 1938, when this collector, Lewis Calder, came to visit her after seeing her works hanging in the nearby drugstore, she wasn't home. And her, her I believe it was her daughter-in-law, told him, come back. Uh, she, she has about 10 paintings she can show you. Come back tomorrow. And then Grandma Moses panicked when, when Dorothy told her this because she didn't actually have 10 paintings. She only had nine, I guess. And so she took this big scene of the Shenandoah River Valley and she sliced it in half and offered it as two separate paintings. <laughs> and so now this work is really kind of seen as a, what we call, you know, in, in art history, a diptych, you know, two kind of panels that go together. But it's just further evidence of the way that Grandma Moses was somebody who was so matter of fact and kind of just didn't have any kind of qualms about what she was doing and was willing to kind of find solutions quickly and and really kind of meet the demands of the people who were interested in her work. And that was a trend that just really continued in, in many ways as her work became so wildly popular in merchandise, as greeting cards and she was somebody who was who was ready and game for the kind of fame um, that followed her discovery. The story you tell about Otto Kalir discovering her works, it brought to mind some of the 1930s and 40s stories of movie stars being discovered. I mean, Lana Turner sipping a soda at a drugstore fountain or Dorothy L'Amour as an elevator operator at Marshall Fields. It really is astonishing what power an influential art historian or gallery owner or museum director can have. Absolutely. And they, they all have these incredible stories, every single artist in the show. And so I try, you know, as much as I, as I could to have extended labels that, that introduce people to, you know, not only the work that's on the wall, but a little bit about the artists and their story, because they each have that like incredible breakthrough moment. One story that I have to tell is about John Kane, who's again, one of the most important artists in, in, in the book and the exhibition and who, whose work you'll encounter immediately upon walking into the show along with Grandma Moses and Horace Pippin. So he represents this reality that a lot of these artists were very confident about their artistic abilities and you know weren't actually waiting to be discovered. He, he was somebody who lived in Pittsburgh and there was a very active arts community in Pittsburgh and he attended the local art exhibitions, and he went to the Carnegie Museum of Art, which had been established several decades earlier. And the Carnegie Museum had and still has this very important annual, what's no, no longer annual, but an exhibition that's like an international contemporary art show. And it's 
still is very competitive and certainly was back in that day to get your work into this exhibition. And John Keane kept submitting his paintings um, in the late 1920s. He was just getting rejected over and over again. But finally, in 1927, he submits this work that you see in, in Gatecrashers, the exhibition called Scene from the Scottish Highlands. And it's this adorable scene of two children dressed in Scotch Highlander dress because John Keane himself was of Scotch ancestry. He immigrated to the United States as an adult. What he's showing is these children dancing at a Scottish American festival, which happened annually in a nearby park uh, called Kennywood Park. And he entered this work in the exhibition. And finally, someone spoke up for him. Someone showed up for him. It was this painter, Andrew Dasberg, who was a trained American modernist and really loved, uh, especially um, Native American and Southwestern art. He'd been out spending time in an artist colony out in New Mexico. He was very open to you know, artists from non-traditional backgrounds. And he said, you know, I will vote down every single work in this show because that's what a jury is, is meant to do in these kinds of exhibition. They're, they're there to kind of decide what gets into the show. And he said, None, I will vote down every, every single other work if we don't include this work. <laughs> and so that's how John Kane got into the Carnegie International. And then there was a ton of kind of, you know, whispering about it that happened before the opening of the show because he was the only Pittsburgh painted, painter to be included in this major international exhibition. And he, you know, as the newspapers put it, he had painted more boxcars than canvases in his lifetime. That painting of the Highland Games, the children at the Highland Games, is so charming. And the story you tell, we should point out, this was almost a decade before that Museum of Modern Art exhibition, wasn't it? Correct. And so Kane was really the first gate crasher. I mean, he was the first person. There were other self-taught artists who, who got some amount of recognition before him, but he was the first to kind of get on the, the national radar. His story just exploded in the press after that work made it into the Carnegie International. He became a sensation. And he immediately uh, started being, his work started being collected by people like Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, who was one of the founding trustees of the Museum of Modern Art. He unfortunately only lived for seven more years after that, but his fame continued in the 1930s. You know, his autobiography was published posthumously, um, which was really rare in that day for, for an artist's um, autobiography to be published by a mainstream publisher. But his story was just so fascinating. It was so evocative of the American dream because he was an immigrant who came to this country with nothing and spent his whole you know, young adulthood and, and adulthood working to build this country, building the infrastructure of Pittsburgh and building its uh, working in its steel and coal industries. And so he just had this story that like so many self-taught artists was kind of an inspiration in and of itself, You know, apart from the work being interesting, apart from him being a painter who fit in with so many things that were happening in the art world. You know, his personal story was something that was just extremely appealing at this time. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Katie Jettelson, the High Museum Curator of Folk and Self-Taught Art. The High will have two exhibitions celebrating self-taught artists. Concurrently, Gatecrashers and Really Free, the Radical Art of Nellie Mae Rowe. How do these shows complement one another? My vision of of their connection has to do with the way that Gatecrashers is, is, again, this kind of origin story. Gatecrashers really establishes um, the who, what, when, where, why of how self-taught artists first started being recognized in this country. And the Nellie Mae Rowe exhibition is an example of how that, that kind of breakthrough that happened early in the century really paved the way and opened up the art world's sensibilities toward artists from all different kinds of backgrounds, um, even more, because as, as you'll, people will experience in Gatecrashers, the vast majority of the artists in the show are, are not from the South. They're you know, mostly from New England, the Mid-Atlantic, the Midwest, a little bit of California and the West. 
but the South was still regarded in the era of gate crashers, you know, as being this kind of cultural backwater, very unfairly. And it wasn't until later in the century that the art world started paying attention to the fact that actually some of the greatest self-taught artists of all time and some of the greatest Amer truly just American artists of all time were working in the South during the whole 20th century. But people like Nellie Mae Rowe became recognized by the High Museum, by other institutions at the end of her life because of this kind of movement that had started back in the 1920s and 30s with the artists and gate crashers. What distinguishes the artwork of Nellie Mae Rowe? Oh, goodness. I mean, her, her color, her incredible, incredibly complex compositions and just their kind of fullness, the way that every picture that she made, um, especially in her later years, is just overflowing with, with line, with pattern, with animal forms, with human forms. It, it, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and, I, and I can't wait to get her work up on the wall because it's so rich and it's so big, um, even though her compositions are actually quite small or really medium sized, but they really kind of explode forth from their frames. And, and I'm so thrilled for people to experience that on a large scale because our, our previous kind of rotating selections of Rose work that we've been showing since 2005, you know, are have been much smaller. Um, and I'm just thrilled to bring together so much of her work so people can have that really full experience of encountering the tremendous kind of body of work that she created in a relatively short period of time. During the last 15 years of Nellie Mae Rowe's life, she welcomed visitors to her home, sort of an art open house. Um, she called it her playhouse. How is her playhouse incorporated into your exhibition, Really Free? So there's actually a whole section on the playhouse, and it's it's something that is uh, really looking not only at how, how we can represent her, her playhouse, this place that no longer exists, but also how she represented her playhouse. Because in fact, she drew um, the incredible art environment she made in her home in her yard. And so that section includes both her drawings, her own depictions of things in and around her playhouse, as well as photographs that were taken by people like Melinda Blauvelt and Lucinda Bonin during the 1970s. So we have some both large scale photo murals and, um, and you know, smaller framed photographs as objects um, depicting the playhouse and, and Nellie in her playhouse. And then perhaps the most kind of non-traditional and exciting element that we have in that section, as well as elsewhere in the show, are some um, kind of reconstructions of her playhouse that were done on a smaller scale for uh, an experimental film that's being made about her work called uh, This World Is Not My Own. And these are models of her home that were made from these kinds of historic photographs that were, that were taken when her, when her home was, existed. And we have a, a kind of miniature version that's, I, would, I keep describing it, it's on the scale of a really elaborate gingerbread house. If you've ever seen a gingerbread house competition, <laughs> it's, it's small, but it's still quite, you know, amazing and, and rich in its amount of detail. And then there's a larger version of the set that was created specifically on the interior of her home. And that's actually the size of a children's playhouse kind of appropriately. And so we're including some of the kind of interior rooms that were modeled for this film. And the filmmakers did this because there's just very little high quality footage of Roe um, in her home in her lifetime. And so they let themselves kind of be inspired by her and her, her own imagination, her, her own playfulness. And that led them to the solution of kind of recreating her home and actually kind of animating some scenes from her life within it. Katie, on that playful note, how would you describe her chewing gum sculpture? Oh, her chewing gum sculptures. They're so, they're just, they're just very uh, expressive. They have so much personality. We have one in the show that's a uh, kind of mustachioed cat <laughs> curled <laughs> up on a, on a little, uh, a little card and decorated uh, with a few kinds of um, embellishments. And these are sculptures that she made from gum that she chewed because she had 
uh, we think probably migraines and was told at some point by a doctor or someone that she trusted that chewing gum would help kind of settle what she called the jumping in her head. So she had a lot of chewing gum and she was always trying to reuse everything that she had. She was really a magician when it came to um, inventing new uses, new, you know, artful uses for things that other people would just throw away. And, um, and so she molded the gum. And when you see the cat, you're, you would never think, I think upon first glance that it's made of chewing gum. It looks like it, it's made of clay, um, maybe even kind of like a terracotta type feeling. And so when you read the label, it's, it's quite um, a surprise. And it's something that uh, I've heard from, there's a, you know, a very famous celebrated artist, Betty Saar, who's out on the West Coast. And she remembers visiting Nellie Nero sometime in the late 70s. And told me a, a little that she, one thing she remembers most about those sculptures is their smell <laughs> and the fact that they had this kind of minty, you know, aroma. And that's something that's no longer true. Sadly, they've lost that, that kind of, that dimension, but it's still just uh, an interesting, uh, an interesting element to those sculptures. Katie, the dedication you write in the book Gate Crashers is one of the loveliest I have ever read. It is such a testament to your family, to each of them, to your mom as a role model for being a loving mother and a career woman. How does your family inform your work? Oh my gosh. Well, now I'm going to cry. <laughs> So I, I'm incredibly privileged to have um, to have an amazing family, both the family that I grew up with and the family that I have now with my with my husband. Both of my parents are educators. My father, my whole life was working primarily in universities, but also sometimes for the government. And I think that you know he for me he normalized that you know the academy and that higher education was something that could be a reality in my life. And then his kind of focus on, on politics and, and really kind of solving major crises um, in the world, it shaped my, my interest in art in terms of directing me towards artists who have, who are deeply intertwined with, you know, societal problems and major social histories that, that need to be better addressed in the American art world. That's, I think, what he gave to me. And my mother, she was a principal most of my life in a school that was a, a kind of safe environment for, for people who, children and young adults who had suffered emotional trauma and had other kinds of needs that made it impossible for them to be in mainstream education. And spending time with those people growing up my whole life, I think it, it just made me, again, more interested in kind of the underdog and like the people who kind of exist at the margins of society. And then of course, yes, her role is my mother and um, she got her PhD part-time while I was, you know, growing up and just really put in the hours and put in the work that became a source of inspiration for me that you can't have it all, but you can do it all. <laughs> and your education is so important that was her gift. Yes, for all those reasons, I grew up, you know, just uh, with a kind of confidence in the possibility that I could be where I am now and, and that I had an important role to play as a kind of teller of these stories of these artists. And, and my husband is a, is a professional writer. And so he's just somebody who is a constant source of inspiration, because anybody who tries to write knows that it is real scary to try to sit down and do it it really humbles me and, 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 and it lights a fire, you know, kind of within me to, to make sure that, that I'm holding myself to the same standard of kind of productivity and, and communication, good communication. And then my, my two little children, they make me want to, you know, show them that I set an example for them, like my mom did, that there's, there's so much they, they can do. They're both young girls in their lifetimes to, to change the world. Was it your grandmother who said normal is so overrated? <laughs> yeah, my grandmother was somebody who, you know, she got her PhD also despite, you know, being a woman of her generation in the American South and raising a family. She used her PhD to teach in, in prisons. And so, you know, I think that in my family, there's just a great, a great sense of openness to other humans and in wanting to embrace difference and not accept the norm and accept the narratives that are the most received. And so, yeah, my grandmother was a very kind of 
bold, inspiring, and yeah, fearless woman that I admire very much. Katie Jettelson, the High Museum's curator of folk and self-taught art. The High's new exhibition, Gatecrashers, The Rise of the Self-Taught Artist in America, opens on August 20th. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Up next, a new segment in our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring Christina Kwan. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Christina Kwan and I create abstract works on paper using acrylic ink and pen. I also paint large-scale murals using latex paint. I paint very intuitively, so what you're gonna see in my work are large pools of color, brush strokes, marks, fluid drips, and splatters. I use my materials to illustrate a space that is in between, in between identities, in between states of being, in between different versions of yourself. I truly can't remember the quote-unquote start of my interest in art. I guess I'm gonna have to credit it to the Florida public school system. In elementary school, going to art class was the highlight of everything for me. It just never stopped from there. So I've been spending my entire life trying to chase that feeling, that passion, and here I am, still doing it. I moved to Atlanta over 10 years ago, mainly out of convenience because it was the closest large city to my home state, Florida. I never intended on actually staying here, but what kept me here was the community and how open it was. I didn't know anybody and there were so many people who were willing to meet me for coffee or talk to me at a festival for no reason at all. (laughs) And so I was able to start building a network of people in the city in different industries that I connected with and it makes it really hard to leave now because that's what makes it feel like home. To see new art in our city, I love going to Atlanta Contemporary Art Center, White Space, and Mint Gallery. But honestly, especially because of the pandemic, I think I see new art the most online, on Instagram and virtually. So that's probably where I actually go to see most of the new work. Motivation and inspiration are two different things for me. I have always been inspired by the cycles of death and regeneration in nature. So for example, the magical two-week period in Atlanta where all the pink magnolias bloom and the trees are full of petals, and then in no time at all, they all fall down and they're scattered on the pavement in a beautiful mess. I love that. And what motivates me is the work of other artists, whether they be filmmakers, musicians, dancers. When I see that other humans can create things that I never dreamed of and make me feel things that I never thought of, that motivates me to do the same for someone else. If you live in Atlanta, you can actually catch my work in a number of different ways. You can see my murals on Wiley Street with the other Ford Warrior murals in Whiskey Bird in Morningside, in the Sentimentalist over on the west side, or in Marietta on the square. If you want to see my work on paper and canvas, you can catch it most likely online on Instagram <laughs> at christina.quan.art. At any given time, I'm working on multiple projects, which is probably true of any artist. So I have commissions that I'm working on. I have murals that are slated to be painted over the next two months. And I'm also 
putting together a body of new canvases for shows in the fall. Um, but I guess big picture, what I'm actually working on is really embracing my new identity as a mother and how that folds into being an artist. Christina Kwan in our series Speaking of the Arts. You can learn more about Kwan's work on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. We want to invite you all this Sunday to WABE's Mixtape Live, our outdoor music festival featuring Atlanta musicians who've entered NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. The event will be at Sweetwater Brewery from noon to 5 p.m. and hosted by comedian Mark Kendall. Admission is free, but VIP tickets are also available for purchase. If you want to learn more, go to wabe.org, where you can find full event details, as well as COVID safety protocols. We're looking forward to a day of outdoor fun, music, comedy, and community, and I hope we'll see you there. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the artist Steve R. Allen will share details on his foundation's multi-million dollar gift initiative to HBCUs. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.